This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Don Herman is here. He's the Illinois Senate president, a Democrat from Oak Park. Senator, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. The big issue, of course, remaining in the session is the energy bill. Big and complex, but affects people. Let's begin with a little tutorial in layman's terms. Tell folks what the energy bill is. Well, it's really more than an energy bill. We are on the cusp of passing a landmark nation-leading climate bill that will help us transition to a clean energy future, to a uh, no-carbon emission goal for 2050, uh, to help lead our country and the world into the new energy space. Uh, It is, as you said, complex and complicated and controversial, but we are very close to getting it done, and I remain optimistic that we'll get it done this summer. And what is the main sticking point? Well, right now, uh, the main point being negotiated is over the the pace and details of decarbonization. How do we eliminate carbon emissions from uh, energy-producing plants? Uh, The good news is all sides are in general agreement on the objective to uh, reduce and eliminate carbon emissions. Uh, the sticking point right now is really between uh, our core constituencies in the environmental advocacy community and organized labor. And, and, and right now it's, it's really down to um, the rate of change at the natural gas plants. I think there's broad agreement that um, uh, coal plants are, are a, a creature of the past, There's broad agreement that in order to reach a no-carbon future, we need to sustain the existing fleet of nuclear plants through their natural life. Uh, But now we're we're debating how do we deal with the natural gas plants. Uh, Our friends in organized labor who represent the workers at those plants would like them to have a chance, the plants that is, to have a chance to reinvent themselves as low or no-carbon emitting facilities. Uh, and the environmental advocates uh, who are proposing a, a more aggressive closure schedule, um, if that happened, the uh, plants may close before they have a chance to reinvent themselves and cost all the jobs at those plants. And uh, they want the prevailing wage, don't they, big labor? Oh, we think that prevailing wage is, is uh, an important uh, function in, in the clean energy future. These are uh, good uh, jobs that will be in Illinois, and we think everybody should be paid a, uh, a a reasonable living wage. Now, what's the current thinking on a subsidy f- to keep nuclear plants open? Uh, well, you know that's the uh, that's the elephant in the room. Let me try to answer the question this way: when when I flip on the light switch in my home, like millions of other Illinoisans, I expect the lights to come on and stay on. Uh, But there's a cost associated with that reliability. There's also a balancing act. That's what we're trying to work out. So Illinois has always been home to reliable, relatively low-cost power. Um, That's good for our economy. Um, Keeping the the power flowing comes at a cost, and um, our challenge is keeping that expense manageable. What we don't want is to end up like Texas, which has continued to uh, 
be roiled by poor policymaking and uh, a, a real lack of both reliability and affordability in, in the power space. So we recognize that in order to um, reach a clean energy future, we do need to keep those nuclear plants online. And, uh, and that's an unpleasant part of the, of the, the bill, but uh, a necessary one. Now, I've been on the beat long enough to remember Tom Ayers when he was ComEd chief promising that nuclear would be too cheap to meter. What happened? <laughs> A good question. I don't remember that, that quote in particular. Um, nuclear energy is still a key component in our portfolio of, of energy that leads to a, a relatively low-cost environment here in Illinois. Um, Exelon would tell you that they are the victims of that at the national level and that uh, the uh, the rules coming out of Washington uh, uh, put them in a competitive disadvantage because they are so cheap and because the, you know, those plants were built by ratepayer dollars and uh, continue to be subsidized to some extent. Um, but you've hit on part of the problem is just the, uh, the information asymmetry. Exelon knows a lot more about its business than, uh, than we do. And we're trying to make sure that uh, we sustain those plants and the jobs at them without simply pouring money into the pockets of Exelon. And what is the current number? How many hundreds of millions for Exelon to keep those plants open? I believe that the, um, the deal that the governor struck uh, with Exelon in the waning days of the spring session was uh, $700 million over six years. Um, again, a lot of money, but uh, the unfortunate uh, reality is that without those nuclear plants online, uh, our portfolio becomes a lot dirtier a lot quicker we would start relying more on coal and even worse importing uh, dirty energy from out of state and why is natural gas the bad guy now we used to hear that that was the clean alternative to coal what happened well it, it is the clean alternative to coal but it is not nearly as clean as wind and solar and other uh, truly green alternatives and we recognize that we want to transition to that but uh, we need reliable, what they call base load, that kind of power that flows 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that when I flip my light switch, the lights come on. Uh, I hope that battery technology and other things will, will create a more durable platform for renewable energy. But in the meantime, uh, natural gas is cleaner, but still emits carbon. And, and I also hope the technology will lead to carbon capture techniques that allow um, some of those plants to, again, reinvent themselves in a way that is little to no carbon emission. So what is your goal on when to go back to Springfield and approve the deal? I, I am, again, cautiously optimistic we will be back this summer. There are some uh, real-world deadlines coming up uh, towards the end of the summer. But more importantly, right now we need uh, labor and environmental advocates to work out their differences. They are not at odds on the objectives. They are only negotiating the, the how, not the what. And I expect they'll be able to do that, and we're giving them both enough elbow room to do it, but also enough prodding to do it soon. Would it be like in August? I would hope that uh, sometime in the next uh, uh, two weeks to two months, we'll, we'll be in Springfield putting the final touches on this bill. We're talking Springfield issues with Don Harmon. He's the president of the Illinois Senate. 
Uh, I'm sure you know the Republicans are castigating new ruling Democrats for gerrymandering the map of the new legislative districts. What do you say to them? I am proud of the work that the General Assembly did this spring. We have a constitutional obligation, which we fulfilled, to redistrict the General Assembly um, districts um, before June 30th. Um, we embarked on a process that was uh, transparent and, and took in public input. We had more than 40 public hearings between the House and the Senate. We were able to use our uh, pandemic-learned skills and have virtual hearings so people from all across the state could participate without uh, leaving their homes. And in the end, uh, our objective was to draw maps that were fair, that reflected the diversity of the, the state of Illinois, and uh, benefited from hearing from communities of interest. Now, my Republican friends have also sued us uh, over, over these maps. Uh, litigation was inevitable from the start, um, but with that litigation pending, I, I will let the maps speak for themselves. Uh, even Governor Prisker says we didn't do enough on ethics reform. Do you think more is needed, and what should it be? I'm also proud of the work the General Assembly did on ethics reform this session. The, the ethics bill we passed was the most comprehensive ethics legislation I've seen in my time in Springfield. Um, the critics will always criticize, and we can never go far enough for the critics. Uh, but um, there, are, there are organizations that raise money to criticize us and then criticize us to raise more money. I don't know that we should be listening to the uh, indignation profiteers as to what is or is not adequate ethics reform. If you look at what's actually in the bill, it's, it's really quite something. Um, we have uh, required the disclosure of, quote-unquote, consultants who are really just shadow lobbyists who have operated uh, on the periphery for years. Uh, we have enacted a revolving door so that a legislator uh, can't leave the building on Friday afternoon with a briefcase full of bills that he's been working on and show up Monday morning as a special interest lobbyist lobbying for those very same bills. Uh, we've recalibrated our statements of economic interest that we file each year so that you all have a much better sense of uh, our assets and our income and what might motivate elected officials. Um, we prohibited fundraising uh, on uh, not only any session day, but the day before or the day after a session. Um, these are pretty significant changes. And uh, again, um, I'll let the bill speak for itself, but there will, it's impossible for us to do enough, although we always have to keep trying to do more. Is the uh, six-month limit on the revolving door long enough? I, I think that it is. Um, it, it provides that break. What, what the problem that we really saw was folks leaving in the middle of a general assembly and coming back right away as a lobbyist. That's incredibly distasteful. Um, I don't know if there's any magic to the actual length of time, so long as there is a, a, a timeout when you uh, stop being a legislator before you can start being a lobbyist. You've been crusading against gun violence and been a big proponent of gun control your whole career. Is there anything we can do additionally on the state level that could pass to get at the continuing scourge of gun violence in the city? 
thank you for recognizing the work that uh, we've all done in Springfield. Uh, I, I, I passed a, a, a gun dealer uh, regulation bill a couple of years ago after working on it for 16 years. Uh, obviously, I think that uh, cracking down on the source of guns is critically important. And, and 40% of the guns that end up at crime scenes in the city of Chicago were initially sold by an Illinois gun dealer. I hope that that bill will have an impact. But the uh, the flip side of that, obviously, is that 60% of those guns are trafficked in from out of state. The bill I passed did include some uh, efforts to uh, better understand and document that gun trafficking pattern. But what we really need is action at the federal level. I'm, I'm pleased that the Biden administration has uh, re renewed and rejuvenated those sorts of efforts to uh, crack down on violence. But as long as Indiana and Missouri and Mississippi and other states nearby don't live up to their obligations, uh, they're going to be a, a ready source of illegal guns in, in Illinois and in the city of Chicago. The legislature also defied Mayor Lightfoot and passed the phase-in of an elected school board in the city of Chicago. Looks like Pritzker will sign it. Any changes here you think would be appropriate in a trailer bill? The wonderful thing about the legislative process is it is just that it is a process. Um, we never go out of business. Uh, if there are things we got wrong, we can fix them. If there are emerging circumstances that require a different approach, we can adapt. Um, you know, the honest truth is there was overwhelming support for an elected Chicago school board. Not only did politicians like myself and the Speaker of the House and the governor uh, and even the mayor of the city campaign in favor of it, uh, I think there's broad support in the community. Remember, Chicago is the only school district in the state of Illinois without an elected school board. Uh, at the same time, we recognize the unique nature of the city of Chicago and its school district, and that's the reason its school board looks a little different than the rest of them. But um, if, if we got something wrong, we'll be in business in Springfield to try to change it. And finally, what's been the effect of no Mike Madigan in Springfield during this session? It was wonderful just to get back to sort of a normal session uh, after the pandemic. Uh, you know, Speaker Chris Welch, uh, my friend and neighbor here from the western suburbs, uh, did an admirable job of leading his uh, caucus and his chamber through a tumultuous year. Uh, I was pleased that both House and Senate got through COVID without any uh, major outbreaks that disrupted our business. And in the end, we were able to do an awful lot of things. You know, the governor teased me all session because I – kept a note card in my pocket of my suit coat with all the things that I thought we had to do, um, pass a balanced budget, approve uh, fair redistricting maps, address the Floyd card backlog, um, strengthen the ethics laws, all things that we've talked about. Um, we also passed a major election law bill that uh, picks up on all the things we've learned from the pandemic and makes, makes it easier to vote in Illinois while other states are uh, making it more difficult. Um, none of that would have been possible without a real uh, partnership between the House and the Senate. And I'm, uh, I'm eager to continue working with uh, Speaker Welch uh, to improve Illinois for the people who uh, we all represent. Am I hearing you saying that more got done without Mike Madigan? I, it was a good year, and it was uh, <laughs> it, rivaled, it rivaled 2019, Governor Pritzker's first year when uh, Speaker Madigan and President Cullerton 
uh, presided over the two chambers and got an awful lot done in the first year of the governor's term. That's Don Herman. He's the uh, president of the Illinois Senate, a Democrat from Oak Park. Senator, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Look forward to seeing you and talking to you again soon. Someone else connected to Chicago and very much in the news this week was Merrick Garland. He grew up in Lincolnwood, graduated with honors from Niles West High School, helped out Abner Mikva along the way, and today is the U.S. Attorney General. He stood with President Biden this week detailing new federal initiatives against gun violence, that never-ending plague here in Chicago. This strategy is built around four principles. Setting strategic enforcement priorities, fostering trust with and earning legitimacy in our communities, investing in community-based prevention and intervention programs, and measuring the results of these efforts through a decrease in violent crime, not merely by arrests and convictions as if they were ends in themselves. Now, we know that the lion's share of violent crime reduction work is shouldered by our state, local, tribal, and territorial law enforcement partners. Core to our strategy is targeted support of the critical work that you will be doing in the weeks and months ahead. Every one of our U.S. Attorney's offices is working with its local partners to establish an immediate plan to address the spike in violent crime that typically occurs during the summer. And the law enforcement components of the department are making enhanced resources available to help prevent and disrupt violent crime and to focus on the most dangerous, most violent offenders. The department is also strengthening our Project Safe Neighborhoods, our cornerstone initiative that brings together law enforcement and community stakeholders to develop solutions to pressing violent crime problems. Community-led efforts are vital to preventing violence before it occurs. The Justice Department has available over $1 billion in funding through over a dozen grant programs that can be used to support evidence-based community violence intervention strategies. And I want to say that's what I found particularly useful in our discussion just a few minutes ago, was the fact that there are such evidence-based programs available, and I'm hoping that you will get together with us so that we can spread those across the country, as well as, of course, funding your own. A properly functioning criminal justice system is essential to our efforts as well. The department has grant funding available to help cities resume court operations and services that were curtailed during the COVID-19 pandemic. That includes funding for technology and equipment, for courts to address the backlog of cases and enhance access to justice. We know that an effective violent crime reduction strategy must also address the illegal trafficking of firearms and focus on keeping guns out of the wrong hands. And so the department is delivering on the promises we made here at the White House in April. On May 7th, we issued a proposed rule to help address the proliferation of ghost guns. On June 7th, we issued a proposed rule to clarify that pistols equipped with certain stabilizing braces are subject to the same statutory restrictions as easily concealable short-barreled rifles. And on the same day, the department published model extreme risk protection order legislation for states to consider as they craft their own laws to reduce gun violence. We are now taking further steps. First, 
We will hold gun dealers that break the rules accountable for their actions. Most federally licensed firearms dealers operate legally in selling guns to individuals who have passed background checks. But those dealers that willfully violate the law increase the risk that guns will fall into the wrong hands. Absent extraordinary circumstances, ATF will initiate proceedings to revoke the licenses of dealers that willfully violate the law by failing to conduct required background checks, falsifying records, failing to respond to trace requests, refusing to permit ATF to conduct inspections, or transferring firearms to persons who are prohibited from owning them. Second, we are seeking funding to increase ATF's dealer inspection capacity and improve its effectiveness. ATF has very limited inspection resources. The President's fiscal 2022 budget requests resources to add inspection positions in every field division. The effectiveness of the enforcement program depends on the ability to identify and focus on those dealers that pose the greatest risk to public safety. Starting today, ATF will make clear to investigators in every field division that, as they prioritize inspections, they must consider the extent to which firearms sold by a dealer are later used in criminal activity. Third, we will improve information sharing with state, local, tribal, and territorial partners to help bring more intelligence and law enforcement resources to bear, as well as with the public to increase our own accountability. Today, ATF has a point of contact in every field division to receive information from mayors, police chiefs, and other local leaders about firearms dealers they believe are acting unlawfully. And starting next month, ATF will begin sharing inspection data with the 16 states that license or regulate firearms dealers themselves. Also beginning next month, ATF will publicly post information about inspection frequency and outcomes disaggregated by field division, providing for enhanced transparency and accountability. Fourth, we are launching a concerted effort to crack down on gun traffickers. Yesterday, the department announced that it will establish five new cross-jurisdictional law enforcement strike forces within the next 30 days. The strike forces will focus on addressing significant firearms trafficking corridors that fuel violence in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Washington, D.C., as well as in cities and towns along the way. The Justice Department's violent crime reduction strategy and our initiatives to stem the rising tide of illegal, illegal guns will save lives. But these steps alone will not solve the problem of violent crime. Success depends on all of us joining together, those of you in this room, the many like you across the country who are working to keep their communities safe, and the people of our communities themselves. Attorney General Merrick Garland on the new federal initiatives against gun violence. After a break, the roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, and Greg Hines. 
This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hey, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hello there, Bill. And Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. So, Ray, are you taking the Tribune buyout? I am not taking the Tribune buyout. A lot of my colleagues are, of course. There's about 40-some-odd leaving the Tribune, a few more from the suburban papers, too. So uh, we're losing a lot of colleagues. Um, I saw a chart. I haven't verified it, but I saw a chart coming from one of the other guilds in the chain, and it listed the Tribune as having uh, around 165 uh, guild members back when we certified our guild in May of 2018, and that number would drop to around 87 after the buyout, so you know, roughly half of what we had then. Still a healthy, healthy-sized staff. Those are the guild members. There's also managers, so we'd still be over 100 overall. But um, you know, you can't um, say enough about the great talent that walked out the door. We have uh, investigative folks like Todd Lighty, irreplaceable. Um, we have uh, columnists like Mary Schmeek, Eric Zorn, Dylan. Uh, those folks are. Those voices are hard to replace too. So um, it's sad uh, to see that kind of talent leave, but uh, that's what our new owners uh, wanted to do was to lower the size of the staff with buyouts. Ray, why do you think so many are taking the buyout? Um, I think part of it is Alden's reputation is one that it tries to strip down papers and align the pockets of the owners by making uh, by not spending as much money, right? So, if you, uh, reporters are ones who take salaries, and and when you look at it just at the bottom line, you think, well, you can remove a reporter, and that's uh, a salary that you don't have to pay, but. What you don't see in that calculation is how invaluable a reporter or a columnist is to the readers. Of course, uh, another another one we are losing was John Cass, who has people who love him and hate him but read him. And uh, that's a voice that will be missed by uh, a large crew of, of uh, supporters and will also be cheered by a large crew of supporters, too. But, or of uh, people who disagree with him too, but it's a uh, another reason I think is that uh, you get twelve weeks plus the number of one week for every year you've been there. If you've been there, and there's some people who've been there around forty years, you could get a year's worth of pay to uh, to leave. And a few of the colleagues calculated that and said it was a good move for them. So I can't get in everybody's head. Nobody really can. But um, there is two of the biggest reasons right there are the the reputation, the the new owners and the possibility of of, uh, getting a a decent, not spectacular, but a decent buyout uh, if you 
have a lot of years in. So, Ray, what do you think the Tribune is going to look like going forward? I think, you know, we didn't lose anybody on our main government beats. Uh, you know, we still have stars like Jason Meisner there. We still have Rick Pearson, the great political reporter. We still have Bill Ruthart, Greg Pratt, and John Byrne over at uh, City Hall. And we still have um, Megan Cropo, uh covering uh, courts. Um, so we still have a robust uh, police uh, team, uh, police cops, it's crime team. And um, I just believe that, uh, you know, we'll still be cranking it out. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to pedal faster, obviously, all of us who are still there. But um, I I think uh, you may not see as many columns, obviously, you may, columnists, and you may not see as many uh, in-depth pieces as, as we used to have because the size of our investigative team has, has dropped, although we've added a couple of people recently. But um, I still think we're, you know, going to be out there swinging and competing, and we'll do our best to try to, to break stories, and we will be breaking stories, and we will be, you know, getting scoops, and I just think that... Uh, you know, it wasn't, it won't be as strong as it used to be, but it'll still be a feisty paper. And, Greg, we should say uh, we're thankful that the Tribune still has Ray, shouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad he, uh, Ray doesn't need that big paycheck. He's dedicated to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lynn, what do you think it means for the newspaper business that so many are exiting the Tribune? Uh, well, it may not. It, overall, it is a reflection on the shrinkage of uh, the local newspaper, and that's not good. Uh, all of us have come up through local news, and this is we're all dedicated to from our various beats telling the Chicago story. Me in Washington, Ray, who spends a lot, of time, you know, who comes out of the Springfield, whatever. Uh, but I do want to say for some of the people who left the Tribune. Uh, who have been there a long time and who are older, maybe thinking about retirement anyway. You know, so a few of them I understand. It, it just was, um, you know, your salary. The uh, the other thing we still have to find out is what columnists may negotiate deals to still have their work appear in the Tribune, either through a syndicate or some other columnist arrangement. I noticed Eric Zorn was in the Friday paper. Uh, with the name of what I think his uh, blog is. So I don't know if that was a one-off or what. So there might be side deals that people are making uh, on the columnist front to still have their voices heard. Uh, It also means that we should be grateful in Chicago that there is still uh, the Sun-Times, and we have always punched above our weight. And, Ray, when you talk about being lean and mean, we have always always uh, not had the resources you've had at the Tribune, and we get it done, and partly is we have an enormously strong bench of our of our beat reporters, Fran at City Hall, John Seidel at the Federal Building. Uh, we have a whole bench of crime reporters who, who know the city well, and of course we have our columnists, uh, but I am... I am sorry to see a, the trip diminished in any way because we've always been worthy competitors. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd just like to add that I uh, just to 
agree. I agree with Lynn. I mean, I worked at Sun Times for a few years too, and, and it was always a real competition, and it still will be. But um, I wanted to add too that uh, I know that Steve Chapman, who is leading, is going to continue as a syndicate writer, and he will be. Uh, I from all everything I've heard, he'll be on our pages still, and same for Heidi Stevens, who will be uh, writing for the Tribune uh, Syndicate too, the Tribune Media Content uh, Group. And um, I'm not sure about what Eric's deal is, but he's he is leaving, um, and I'm not sure uh, whether he's got a, a deal where he could still appear to or not. Greg, what's it mean for the city that the Tribune is losing so many? Well... <laughs> You know, it's not good, uh, but uh, I, I want to be careful here uh, uh, to uh, separate our self-interest because we all have a self-interest from the, from the city's self-interest. Whenever, whenever a journalistic voice starts to go dark, uh, uh, it uh, gives more leeway to uh, unscrupulous politicians uh, to go do what they're going to do. It means that stories that ought to be covered, uh, whether they involve politics or uh, equity or anything else aren't going to be covered. I mean, there has been some signs of, of growth of uh, kind of new kinds of journalism supported by foundations. Uh, there was a piece that uh, The Guardian, uh, the British paper, uh, did today about uh, about the Blood Club Chicago and other kinds of uh, hyper-local uh, institutions that have started to pop up. Uh, we do more political coverage of Cranes than we used to. Uh, the, uh, Heather's not here from the Daily who used to work for the Daily Line, but that's a, a relatively new phenomenon. So to some extent, some of the some of the load gets picked up by other people, and you can't be against change per se. The world is going to change. It's golly gosh, it's just the way it is. Uh, but uh, the Tribune has been such a dominant media vehicle in this town for so long that to see it become just a shell of itself is, is not a pretty sight, and it's not good for, for the town either. Heather Sharon joins us now. Heather, what do you think of the exodus at the Tribune? What's it mean for the newspaper business and the city? Oh, well, it's it's just really heartbreaking, and I think every um, female journalist in particular owes a debt of gratitude to Mary Schmidt, who of course won a Pulitzer and, and worked for the Tribune for, for decades. And it's just, it's a sad day. It's a sad day for the Tribune and it's a sad day for the city because it will lose those voices. And I guess all we can do is hope that the Tribune weathers the storm and that those good journalists find soft launching pads at other news organizations or in retirement or whole new careers. Hey, gang, we should talk a little bit about the uh, possible return of the council wars after the uh, raucous meeting on Wednesday. We're chatting before the meeting scheduled for Friday. So as we talk, we don't know whether the uh, DuSable compromise will fly. But, um, you know, Heather, what, what's your take on what's happening in the city council? Well, there is just a moment of acrimony and antagonism between the mayor and the city council. You, of course, uh, could speak better to this, but I don't ever recall a mayor leaving the rostrum to angrily confront an, an alderman with fingers flying and, and accusations ricocheting. So I, I think it's another, it's more proof that the mayor 
relationship with the city council is very damaged, and we will have to see how it plays out. The city council has any number of huge votes up ahead, including um, on how to spend the nearly $2 billion in federal relief funds coming to Chicago, as well as the 2022 budget, which is really going to be exceedingly difficult to balance because the city's pension payments are truly set to skyrocket, um, making a bad financial situation worse. And that will make everything harder when there's a distinct lack of trust on both sides. Greg, what's your take? Is this uh, just political theater or something more serious? Uh, Bill, I think it's more serious, and it's and it's a mixed blessing. Um, uh, some of the mayor's allies, particularly some of the progressives, tried to make the argument that hey, democracy is finally coming to the city council instead of just rolling over and, uh, and yapping when the mayor says uh, do it. That uh, all of them are standing up and fighting for what they believe, and, uh, and nobody ever said democracy was supposed to be really pretty. Um, and it, to and to a degree, there is some truth to that. Um, uh, we all know that. Uh, Although Chicago, in theory, has a strong council, weak mayor form of government, in, in reality, it's been the opposite. Uh, and, uh, and city councils very rarely have uh, have, have illustrated their uh, indicated their their, uh, their independence. Uh, the, the mayor never has to veto anything because there's never anything to veto. Um, uh, but that having been said, um, there's no question that the acrimony level is 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 uh, is building up. Uh, the council is factionalizing, and uh, if the price of democracy is Washington kind of stasis where you don't get anything done, I'm not sure I want that either. I would just point out that while I think it's great political theater, this mayor still has at least 27 votes to do what she wants to do, so nothing is going to stop yet. How about you, Ray? What's your take? Well, uh, you know, we're having a we're having a rough go here here, but I'm not sure um how long she can um continue to have these little flare ups with her, her council before they start to rebel and that number twenty seven could could dip. But uh so far I don't think we're even close to council wars. We're just at the point where things are starting to look interesting. And, and Lynn, I'm not so sure that the mayor even looks bad being strong-willed. What do you think? Well, from where I sit uh, watching this uh, from a distance, it doesn't strike me as all that big of a deal. So there is a chaotic council meeting. Uh, I saw the dramatic pictures that our sometimes photographer Ashley uh, Resin shot. Okay, it's kind of when I was there, what's the big deal? So they gaveled it out, didn't get stuff done they wanted to. Uh, if if Lakeshore Drive isn't renamed uh, for our city's founder, John Pontusable, this week, maybe it will next. Uh, now, I'm not ignorant, though, of the political implications of Lightfoot looking weak because that has played big on Chicago TV. But I think if she gets a few things done, uh, it will change. Anyway, what this has done, in a sense, is a favor for her because all this, all what really happened this week was noise. It distracted from the much bigger long-term impact story that her negotiations to try to change the elected school board bill are likely not to create at this point, as we speak today, in any significant changes. 
And that is what has a real impact on people who are interested in how the Chicago schools are going to be run in the coming years. So think of it this way. She got a break for a week. Hey, gang, we uh, we talk a lot about ethics in Springfield, and we've uh, agreed in the recent weeks that uh, the new laws on ethics have been tepid coming out of this session. But earlier in this hour, the president of the Senate, Don Harmon, was uh, creating and coining a new phrase to push back at the good government groups who thinks the uh, who think the ethics reforms are tepid. He called them indignation profiteers, Ray. What do you think of that? Well, that is a new phrase, um, to me anyway. And I think that uh, the groups that are out there pushing, like uh, BGA, et cetera, are um, doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be out there pushing the uh, politicians to do better and to make themselves more transparent and to uh, better the rules of, of ethics that they have to stand up to and um, or stand with. And and really, uh, we have got a long ways to go here before uh, we can get uh, a truly clean, uh, ethical a platform, or you could call. We got a long ways to go before we could say Illinois is ready for reform, or Chicago is ready for reform. But um, I'm not sure that that uh, uh, you know yapping at, at the uh, at the heels of the people who are yapping at your heels is very uh, very uh, uh, profitable for either side. Heather, the uh, scourge of gun violence, of course, continues in Chicago, but we did get some new federal gun initiatives out of the White House this week. Do any of them seem like a lot different or will be effective? What do you think? They don't. Uh, Chicago has often been the recipient of task forces and strike forces, and this is pulled from that same cloth. So it's unclear to me whether it will make a difference, although it is what what Mayor Lightfoot has been asking for from the Biden administration, help in stopping the flow of illegal guns into Chicago. And Lynn, out your way, I see there's at least a framework on Capitol Hill for police reform. Does anything like that in that look effective? Well, it will ad- ad- address some things nationally that in some ways have been addressed in Chicago. Uh, uh, rules dealing with uh, banning the use of chokeholds. Well, the city's had one of those bans. Uh, the per- Taking away what we have now, the, uh, the immunity that police have from being personally sued is a big issue. And the Democrats, some Democrats have been pushing for it. It's a big sticking point for Republicans. Certainly, if they, and I don't see it getting through. Uh, the alternative may be making police departments more liable. I don't see how that may change things in Chicago since uh, uh, victims of police violence seem to successfully sue the city all the time. Uh, but there, there uh, might be other things in it, depending on the final version, that could be helpful. And the quick thing about the Biden package, I think the biggest impact that it will have is that it frees very explicitly so much of the COVID rescue money. It makes it very clear that a lot of it can be used on uh, law enforcement related uh, programs. 
dealing with the police and related programs on crime prevention, what causes, uh, that it will be useful to uh, Chicago. And, Greg, is the infrastructure compromise that's being heralded in Washington really going to happen if Biden keeps to plan and uh, will not sign it unless he also gets a separate bill for the, uh, you know, the people infrastructure that uh, is uh, might be pushed through with, you know, budget cons- reconciliation. What do you think about that? Uh, that's a really good question, Bill. Uh, he's, it's definitely a high wire act. I mean, I assume uh, uh, Joe Biden is a big, big boy. He's growing up. I assume he didn't enter into this deal if he didn't think it was going to hold together. But you are, you are correct. Um, uh, I think there's every reason to think that uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, is going to try to pull Republican votes off of this deal uh, for the, the, the skinny uh, infrastructure bill. Because while well, the Democrats are going to pass the big one anyhow, so why do you want to vote for? It. Um, uh, you know, at the same time, the, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party, the progressives are screaming and yelling pretty loudly now that we can't exist just on this skinny bill. It doesn't deal with any of our social welfare spending, uh, human infrastructure. We've got to have that passed, too. And he's got to walk through that minefield uh, and get at least 60 votes to get this thing uh, through the Senate, because presumably somebody's going to try to filibuster it, and then come back and, and hold together all the Democrats, uh, all all 50 uh, and Kamala Harris and uh, and pass the uh, the bigger bill. Uh, that's a lot of ifs. It could happen, but uh, like I said, it's, he's going to be up on the on the high wire for, on this one. One quick thing, uh, Biden said, and this threw some Republicans for a loop. I won't sign just one bill. I won't just do the hard infrastructure. I will. I need to sign both bills at the same time. That will be subject to much debate as to what now exactly the nature of the deal really is. That's Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Thanks to her. Also to uh, Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Up next, Lauren Cohn. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Cloud Kitchens are donating hundreds of meals on a monthly basis to the Love Fridge, a community fridge and mutual aid network aimed at combating food insecurity in 18 neighborhoods across Chicago. Joining me, the operations manager of Cloud Kitchens is Deirdre Suber. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Why do we still have a problem getting food to people in need, Deirdre? Oh, wow. That's uh, such a big question. Um, however, I think that primarily it is driven by food deserts, and meaning that there are areas where there's not easily accessible for food, um, uh, or as well as healthy food, to everyone in the city. It's just remarkable to me that in Chicago at this point, we've been talking about this for so long that we still have that as a problem. Yes, you know, I, I, I would agree. You know, at Cloud Kitchens, you know, our mission is uh, really around better infrastructure for better food. And so, you know, we, uh, at our core, we provide a space for restaurateurs to serve local communities through a delivery-only business model. Um, however, um, that doesn't mean that it's only for sale. We definitely understand that we have an obligation to also ensure that people that can't afford to buy food or have access to food are able to eat. And our partnership with Love Fridge really allows us to do that. 
So you're the host for restaurants or young chefs to work somewhere, and then they make the food that then goes to Love Fridge, which is dispersed in the communities. Do I have that correct? That is correct. You know, think of us as, as a uh, traditional mall food court, but without the seating, right? We have multiple um, kitchens located in our facilities, um, and they all cook food in which customers can purchase um, uh via their phone, um, through various websites and delivery service platforms, um, and their food can either be picked up or it can be delivered by a delivery driver. So you're helping small businesses, also young chefs who, you know, want to get their name out there who may not have uh, a place to do that or have found a job in this economy. You're giving them help. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly correct. You know, when the pandemic um, hit last year, we became a home for a lot of restaurateurs who were displaced um, due to the lack of sales in their dining halls. Um, and so, you know, currently about 80% of our um, operators are small and medium business owners, which means that this is their only location or they have a second location. Um, but also um, almost 70% are also minority business owners or women owners as well. And so we really do take pride in providing opportunity for restaurateurs that traditionally might not have access to capital to start their own traditional restaurant. Deirdre Suber, the operations manager of Cloud Kitchens. Thanks for being with me. I really appreciate it. This is great work. We really support you. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.